Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we are back today with we lunch are hour with Renault. So excited. Uh, he is furiously typing away something fun on his phone. <laughs> Um, and uh, what you don't know is that before we actually uh, jumped into today, Renault was scooting around the building Indeed. on a Razor scooter. On a so, Razor scooter with giant wheels. With giant wheels. It's awesome. We're in rare form today here. <sighs> no doubt. I feel like uh, all I this... feel like the fact that I didn't fall <coughs> off and had to go to the emergency room is a big win. Big win. And so here we are. It's a big here win we are. today. So today we're going to be handling some questions um, and responding to those questions. Um, uh, uh, these have been sent in by some of you guys who have been uh, listening in and watching in. So thank you for doing that. And what we would Absolutely. like to invite you to do today um, is while you're listening in, if, uh, if there's been a kind of a question maybe lingering in your heart uh, or in your mind um, about uh, anything that we've shared over the last few weeks um, concerning the Enneagram, uh, we'd love to hear that. Um, but in addition to that, really just if there's anything going on, this is kind of an ask yeah. anything week. Yeah. Um, and it gives us an opportunity to just uh, uh, point each other uh, to Jesus, point each other to the gospel, point each other to what God's word says about life. And yeah. uh, so it should be a lot and of fun. And we really are. I mean, uh, one, one of the, the joys about doing something like this is that we, we always want this to feel a little bit like we're grabbing a cup of coffee. And if we were doing that... Uh, and we were sitting for an hour saying, hey, so tell me a little bit about what's going on in your life. And you had questions about life, uh, about relationships, about circumstances, about theology, about God, about then, then we could do that. So today we really wanted to feel that way. Uh, ask what's been on your mind for the last 10 years that you've never asked. And uh, we would, we'll do the very best we can to answer what we can. And if there are questions that you ask that we're still asking that we don't have the answers for, then we'll just make stuff up. It'll be perfect. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, we, will, we will be honest and tell you that. So Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, as we do that, just write in the comments uh, section what your question is, and uh, we'll go through and we'll try to answer the questions and respond to the questions that we've been asked uh, first, and then we'll uh, pick up as many of the ones that you guys jump in with as well. Yeah, so I uh, hope you guys are doing well today. We're excited to, to jump in. As yeah. we've been talking about the Enneagram over the last few weeks, um, one of the resources that we've pointed to is a book called The Road Back to You. And um, you know that, that book, as Renaud has shared, um, in many ways is an incredible resource um, in terms of being able to learn about the, the numbers and how they interact with one another and how that plays out. Um, and there are some questions that really come out of that uh, based on some of the things that the author writes. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, The Road Back to You is also a podcast. Um, and on that podcast, uh, he has uh, just quite a few different um, guests that come on, uh, many of whom are uh, followers of Jesus, many of whom are not followers of Jesus. And so um, we, we've had some questions about um, you know, that book in particular. Is it something that a follower of Jesus should read? Um, are there dangers associated with that? And if so, um, you know, how should we respond to those? Yeah, so and that's I think, really you know, this, is, this, is, this has been a good question that's come up uh, somewhat outside of the Facebook Live space as yeah. well as a little bit inside as I've had conversations because the nature and journey of the Enneagram, this has been a resource that has been very helpful to me uh, and to us in terms of uh, understanding our numbers. 
And because of what is behind the book, the, some of the belief systems and foundational realities of the author and of the spaces in which they travel, it always brings up questions. So the question we really have been wrestling with because of this book, which both answers the question about the book, can it be used as a resource, as well as a broader question is, when we are reading things out there, maybe a marriage book that isn't written by someone that is either a proclaimed follower of Jesus uh, or we know is not a follower of Jesus, but the principles are fantastic, or we're reading a business book, or we're watching uh, a Netflix uh, documentary and it's not done by believers. So some of the things in the documentary uh, are making statements that are clearly not aligned with scripture. Should we read these things? Should we watch these things? If we do read and watch them, how do we discern uh, what is good and what is not good, and how do we wrestle through that? And so in specific terms, with the book on the Enneagram, I think as we answer that question, is this a good resource since there are things in it that are not as helpful or don't align with Scripture or what's behind it doesn't? Should we still use it or should we toss it out? So there's two things that come to mind right away in terms of our journey of discerning what is truth and what is not, what do we take and what do we not. And it comes back to something we've said a couple times, I think even on Facebook Live, is uh, this, this attitude that says, what do I need to receive? What do I need to reject? And what do I need to redeem? So when it comes to information, when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to circumstances in our world, um, we usually use that kind of thinking in things like a Halloween or a, you know, events that like, sh- should we, but it's, it's also very, very helpful in these spaces that whenever I am reading anything, I am watching anything, I am essentially taking anything in music, you listen. music I listen to, I should always be in a space of discernment, which means that I should always be asking myself, what of this information that I am gathering aligns with scripture so I can just receive it. It aligns with scripture. I know it does. It may not have been written by a believer uh, or it may have been written. It doesn't matter. It directly aligns with scripture. If somebody writes in a marriage book, um, husbands, you should really um, be gracious to your wives and love them well and try to meet their needs and provide for them. I don't care who wrote that down. That's true. That aligns with scripture. Right. That is true. I receive it. Then there are things that are going to be very clearly against truths that are revealed in Scripture. And so it doesn't matter how articulate they are, how great they sound, how logical they may seem, they don't align with Scripture, and so I reject them. It doesn't mean I have to reject the whole book, the whole episode, the whole series, unless, for example, if I'm reading a novel and there's a bunch of stuff in the novel that is very explicit, right? It not only doesn't align with scripture, it's doing damage to my brain. So I need to reject the whole because the parts of the whole that are not aligning with scripture are also damaging. So if I'm watching a Netflix series or a TV series and it has a bunch of explicit stuff in it. Game of Thrones. For oh, example. Game of Thrones. He said yeah, it. Yes, you, he did. You know who you Oh, so many people just, <laughs> just, just got disappointed. Yeah. But, but here's the reality. It's is garbage. So our entire um, culture raves about the brilliance of this series. And, but we know that what's in there, episode after episode, from what I've heard and from what I've read, is really, really damaging. So then we reject the whole. So if there is a book that the entire premise of the book is something that is a rejection of a premise of Scripture, 
then reject the book, right? Yeah. So if you've just joined us and you're wondering what it is we're talking yeah. about, good, good, uh, we're, respo- we're responding to some questions that have been sent in, um, but we're also taking a little time to respond to a question about the Enneagram, specifically the book, uh, The Road Back to You, that we have uh, suggested people read in order to understand what the numbers mean. And so Renault's kind of unpacking this framework of how do we, how do we take things in in terms of information uh, that might not be explicitly Christian and uh, talking about this idea of what do we receive um, as good, like, you know, the Bible, um, you know, solid theological teaching, those types of things. What do we reject and say this is not helpful and then what can we redeem? And right. so that's the And so the book, the, the Road Back to You, is in that category where most of the Road Back to You, uh, really the book itself, because it deals with a space that does not oppose Scripture for the most part. The, the whole book is about numbers and personalities, and it gives us great insight into who we are. I can receive or redeem most of that book. So I can take the book and say, this is a very helpful tool, just like I could read a great marriage book or a great business book on business principles that are not necessarily uh, specifically scriptural with verses. They are either neutral in terms of they're not opposing scripture, or they are principled by things that we know are true. Then I can receive it. So that book, for example, after we read it, we're like, in this book, there's a lot of great stuff. Now, in the book early on, he refers to meeting with a Catholic um, priest and spiritual mentor. And we know when we look into the writings of that Catholic priest and spiritual mentor that in the book he elevates, like this guy was life-changing for me. Man, a lot of universalism, a lot of uh, Christ is in us all, but it's, it, it's a lot of really weird and theologically op- opposing. Yeah, he, to wrote the a book called, he wrote a book called Universal Christ, and in that book he says that you know, Christ is everything. Anytime we have a positive spiritual thought, that is Christ. And that's really not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. It opposes scripture. It opposes And so then... So we have to put our guard... So what we do is we don't have to reject the book, The Road Back to You, because there's a sentence in the book about a guy that wrote stuff that that we do oppose. We we just reject that piece. In other words, we just say, I don't don't need to stand by that. In the same way, there are things in the book that um, he may say that we do not theologically align with. And we can say to those pieces, that piece I'm not going to take. I've read so many books that uh, assume, for example, certain scientific realities that I may go, I don't, I don't know that I assume those. I don't stop reading the book. I just go, well, I know this person believes something differently than I do, but the rest of the stuff is good. Or theologically, I've read a lot of books that have theological differences from what, where I stand. The key is this, when you don't know, when you don't know whether something aligns or not, you you need to not just receive it. You need to be able to go, I don't know if this aligns, so what do you do then? You test it against scripture. You go test it against scripture one of two ways. Either you study scripture or you go to someone you trust that studies scripture and you ask them. The trouble with our world today is part of the reason why we have to be so careful about what we read is because most of us don't know scripture well. So we don't have a lot of space to discern. So then you need to have some people in your life that do know Scripture well, that you can go and dialogue with and discern with. And be about the business of learning Scripture. And then exactly growing that. So in essence, that's kind of the general principle as far as the road back to you is concerned. I think it's a great book if you're reading it to learn about the personality types. If you're trying to draw theological truths from it, then there's better books, right? right? So. But this one and, is great in that space. Give us an example of uh, some better books or better resources 
uh, to be able to to draw the the, the gospel yeah, so, uh, into the the conversation yeah. about the enneagram. So um, gospelenneagram.com honestly is probably one of the best spaces. There's videos on there now that John put on there. Uh, there's a descriptions. There's all sorts of things on there that are super duper helpful and yeah. gospel centered. Yeah. And then uh, is it Jesus and the Enneagram or the Enneagram and Jesus? Uh, it's Aaron Sherrill's book. Uh, mm. It's another great little book. It's a little booklet. Uh, it's a great book. Again, they're really dealing with the AJ go- Sherrill. AJ Sherrill. Yeah. What? what anyways. You'll yeah, find it in a second. It's Enneagram and the Way of Jesus. Enneagram and the Way of Jesus. That was a great book. I read that. A really great book. And um, so there are resources like that. But again, those resources. So so here's a here's the perfect example. All those resources will be helpful in understanding your type, but not as helpful, honestly, as, as the, the road, road back, back to you. Yeah. So if you're reading for the intent of understanding your type, the road back to you is the best resource I found. Right. If you're reading to understand gospel integration into this enneagram or vice versa, then the other books enneagram are far far Jesus. more effective. And that's what discerning is all about. Why am I reading this book? What do I need? So I hope that helps. Very much. So um, I hope that Juan is still with us. Juan asked us a great question uh, that let's just start with. I love it. Um, uh, It says, uh, can a Christian lose their salvation? Uh, Why don't we start with something small? Yeah. I love that. Let's start light. Uh, Can a Christian lose lose their salvation? And then he kind of clarifies, can a true Christian backslide so far that you can lose your salvation. Okay, great, great yeah. question, great question. And certainly one that lots of people wrestle with. Um, so let me just start here that um, there are certainly differing views on this. So yeah. our answer to this is where we have come to understand and study. If you talked to legitimate Jesus following believers uh, in some other theological streams, they may differ with us. Yeah. I think they're wrong, um, yeah. but um, again, I, I'm just careful with this because this isn't a, uh, a, a, a whether you follow Jesus or not question. If somebody disagrees with what we're about to say, I wouldn't immediately assume they don't know Jesus. Yeah, so this is not a matter of eternity. To go back to Phil's sermon yes. on uh, categories of belief, this is not a matter of eternity. If you believe someone can lose their salvation or not, that doesn't mean you're, you know you one don't side know or the other, yeah. you may not know Jesus. Yeah. Um, this is uh, what we put in the matters of studied conviction. Yeah. And so we as elders have come to the scripture and we've said, okay, uh, what does God's word teach on this? Um, and we've weighed all of the verses and, and studied it deeply yep. and wrestled together. And, uh, you know, what we're about to share with you now is a studied conviction, is a studied conviction that we hold uh, as a church. And very so. dearly and very strongly. This is not a I think. Yep. This is a I know. But I also recognize that there's others that know differently on this one. Yeah, so, okay, absolutely. so um, bottom line is, uh, I'm going to deal with this in, in, in three parts. One is just answering the question, can you or can't you and, and why not? And, and we would say you cannot lose your salvation once you have your salvation. And there's, there's, there's two primary reasons that we believe that. The first primary reason is that there are actual scriptures, verses, spaces that we understand say that. And then, secondarily, there is a principle in scripture of how God describes our salvation that by its definition creates the space that since he created our salvation for us, he came and got us, 
then we would have to argue that he would lose us. And there's a lot of space in scripture that not necessarily this verse says it this way, but this principle of adoption and integration into the family and he keeps things for us and he holds things for us. By principle, it is very clear in scripture that our salvation is something he gave to us as a free gift and not something he takes from us or that we can lose. So we believe wholeheartedly that once you become a follower of Jesus and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is language we used in Ephesians this last week, that you can't unseal yourself uh, and that he won't unseal you. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee, he is a guarantee of, our inheritance. of our inheritance. So yeah. there are spaces in Scripture in Ephesians and Colossians and Romans in First Peter and a number of other places that are abundantly clear that he comes and rescues us. He keeps for us our inheritance, uh, our future, our redemption, and we will praise him for his rescue of us. I, 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 I always like to put it into these terms when it comes to both his rescue of us and his holding of our salvation. When, as a parent, um, there are lots of spaces that my kids make decisions that are not super wise. They might climb on the back of a couch when they're three or four years old. And I might say from a distance in the kitchen, hey, buddy, you need to get off that couch. You're going to fall off. I don't run toward them to try to rescue them. Now, some of you are like, I run toward mine. Some of us, I know, feel nervous, and then we run. But I just kind of talk it out. And then what happens with the kid? They fall off the back of the couch because they're not listening, and they hit their head on the carpeted floor, and they cry for a minute. And then I get to walk over to them and say, this is why dad says this is not a good idea. There's lots in life that's like that. We make choices, obedience, disobedience, and God often in his forbearance lets things play out, and we learn from that. When my kid is running, my four-year-old is running toward a, a, a street at a park, I, I don't sit in the bench and go, hey, hey buddy, no, no running toward the street. I say that at first as they start the run, but if they don't immediately stop, I jump out of my seat and I run and I go grab them. Why? Because when they get hit by that truck I see coming down the road, I don't get to have a conversation after that with them about why that was a bad idea because they're dead or they're in the emergency room under great distress. So it would be an abusive act on my part to assume that a four-year-old might, in this case, obey me. And if they don't, oh, well, they'll find they'll out learn quickly. They'll learn their lesson yeah. by being hit by a truck, right? Yeah, yeah. So our eternal life, right, for God to say, I'm going to take a fickle human being that is emotionally unstable, as we all are, all over the place in our thinking, faith, doubt, fear, insecurity, sin. And I am going to, one, count on them to decide if they want to roll with me. And if they do, then I will respond to that. And then I'm going to count on their faithfulness for the rest of their lives. For the entire time they're on this planet, I'm going to go, I sure hope they stay faithful. Because if they don't, oh, well, they have eternal death. But if they do, well, then they'll get eternal life. That is the highway with the truck. And, and so we see in Scripture this beautiful display in all these Scriptures of God coming after us. And then we see him saying, once I have rescued you from death and I've made you alive, you don't get to kill yourself again. That's why language also in Scripture is you were once a slave to sin. Now he doesn't say, now you are a free man. To do what you... He says, now you are a slave to righteousness. Not meaning... You are a slave to righteous behavior, 
meaning you have been made righteous by Christ and you can't unrighteous yourself. Right. Because he is your righteousness, you're not your own righteousness. It's a statement of status. It's a statement of status. Yeah. So that's the first thing is we believe wholeheartedly that once adopted as sons and daughters, we belong. We don't get unadopted. And we belong because he made us belong and he keeps us belonging. Now, that where the trick comes in, where there are scriptures that we have uh, in, in, in scripture that talks about, for example, the apostate, the person who abandons the faith. In the book of Hebrews, which we'll be preaching through in a few years, and I'm scared uh, because it's a book. Man, it's a book, and I'm so excited. So it's beautiful, so and it's scary, and it's amazing. But in the book of Hebrews, there's spaces in there that speak about these people that engaged, believed, left, and now they can never return. And so we take verses like that and passages like that and go, is there a space where someone can lose their salvation because it seems like they had it and then they lost it? Or there's the prodigal son space, someone who belonged to the father and then abandoned. But what we find in the prodigal son story is that when he came back, the father didn't say, well, since you returned, you can be my son again. He said to him, you were always my son, right? So, so here's the thing. When somebody from an observational standpoint is saved, we know that they're saved because they express faith. Mm-hmm. We believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth. Mm-hmm. So there's an expression of faith. That's the first sign that somebody knows Jesus. Then if that faith is genuine, so maybe that expression of faith wasn't genuine. We thought it was genuine, but it was emotional. Then we won't see fruit, right? But genuine faith, James would say, will bear genuine fruit over time. Genuine fruit, when it endures, the endurance of the saints, produces a clarity that this person belongs to Jesus. So you express faith, you bear fruit because of your faith, not like immediately day one in the sanctifying process, and then you endure. So what happens to us is we see somebody express faith, and then they bear some fruit, and then they start diminishing. They doubt, they run away, they... We call that one of two things. Either they are a prodigal, in which case they do belong. They cannot lose their salvation. And what will they do? They'll in return. time, they will return, yep. and their endurance will be the ultimate demonstration. Yep, they knew Jesus. Or they are an apostate. Now, what is an apostate? It, it is somebody who didn't believe rightly with genuine faith, and now they're losing salvation. It's someone that when they expressed faith, faith or professed faith, it was for social reasons. It was for emotional reasons. It was, it, in other words, it was not uh, a faith in Jesus as much as an intellectual moment in space. So there's a lot of people that because they want to belong to the community, they do what the community does. We adapt. We, and we don't know which are which. We don't know which are genuine believers, prodigals, or people that genuinely believed and are prodigal, or people that didn't genuinely believe but are behaving like believers and aren't. So that's not our business. What is our business? Me, that's my business, that I need to examine my faith regularly, not to see if it's failing me, but that when I doubt and I fear. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are scriptures like, hey, work out your salvation with fear yep. and trembling. Like, there is, a, there is a sense that we ought to take this thing seriously. It isn't as though... We're just like, oh, yeah, no one can lose their salvation. It's all good. And you just pray a prayer and you're good. You got your get out of hell free card. I always say to people, it's not that I'm saying to you, you might have had salvation. You might have lost it. You better see if you can find it again. It's that I say, you may never have had it. If you see no fruit in your life over a long period of time, you should examine whether your faith was genuine. James would say, if your faith doesn't produce works that are good, then that faith might be useless. In other words, it might not be genuine. So... There are spaces where when somebody is behaving like a prodigal or an apostate, I certainly will engage in their lives and challenge them and say, 
dude, you need to come back to Jesus or you need to know come Jesus, to Jesus, come yeah. to Jesus. But I don't ever see in scripture a space where it says they once were saved, now they're not. Once you are saved, man, praise God. My adopted children that I adopted and my biological children that I birthed, they are mine and they will be mine until the day I die, no matter how they behave or how much they reject me. I may, I may have to make decisions of distancing myself from them at times, but they are mine. And that's a human dad. God lives beyond that. So there it is. You can't lose your salvation once you have it. People that seem to have lost it are either prodigals or they never had it in the first place. Yeah, and you know when it comes when it comes to um, you know recognizing this question is can a can a Christian lose their salvation? You know, one of the things that um, I always ask is, can Jesus lose a Christian? There you go. And and really, you know, what Jesus says is that God, when He's praying to the Father, everyone you have given me, I have not lost. Yeah, that's um, actually in the Bible. That's yeah, crazy, isn't it? You give them to me, I'm not going to lose them. Yeah, and, and you know, and this is why we, we really come at theology um, with a God-first, man-second um, approach. And, um, and, and so most of the time when we're studying the Scripture, we're thinking about these philosophical questions that the Bible doesn't necessarily specifically um, answer, like, can a, you know, there's, it's not like, you know, in Luke 34, which there aren't 34 chapters of Luke, but Luke 34, 5, you can, it, it says, and Jesus said, a Christian cannot lose their salvation. The like Bible doesn't say the it Bible, right. that way. So we're doing theology. We're, we're taking everything that God's word says, and we are processing that, and then we're developing belief based on what God's word says. Well, when we do theology here at Mosaic, we do it in a God-first way. Um, we believe that God is the author of all things, that he is the creator and sustainer of the universe, that uh, the, the world exists for his glory, and that humanity is made for God to enjoy, that, that we are made for him. And so we come to theology first to ask the question, who is God and what is God up to? In the simplest form, it is that God doesn't respond to us, we respond to him. Yeah. And when he does respond to us, so for example, we pray and ask a good father and he gives, that's a relational dynamic he talks about. Yeah. He's describing himself as a loving father saying, I'm allowing you to participate in relationship with me so that you can ask things and do things. But even in those responses, I am sovereign and the story I'm writing and authoring will play out as it is meant to. So you can influence me only insofar as I allow you to influence me, not insofar as I'm waiting to respond to you. So we got a follow-up question from Kim. She says, I agree with you that we can't lose our salvation, but here's what I find difficult. If someone falls away then and rejects Jesus after sincerely believing in him at one point, is it your belief then that that person was never saved in the first place or that they are still saved despite their current choice of rejection. The problem I have with the idea is, they, is that they might not have been saved to begin with is that it makes it difficult for any one of us to have assurance of our salvation. Okay. So, so, that's so a, do you see, do you yes, hear the that's question? A great, that's a great question. And, and here's what I would say to that, right? Is the person I trust with my salvation is God. And the reason I say that this way is my assurance of my salvation is not in my faithfulness. It's in God's faithfulness. So if I know that I am saved, then I place that certainty in God. So now I know I'm going to be a prodigal. 
I, hopefully I won't be a particle, but I'm saying if, if, if I am in that position where I am abandoning faith for a season, well, I'm, I'm going to trust. I'm going to say to God, God, I'm going to trust if I'm ever stupid enough to do that, that because I know that you know me and I know you, my assurance is that you have me, that I, that, that I know it now. And so because of that, this idea of how can I have assurance of salvation if somebody that I knew sincerely loved Jesus and now they've rejected him? I would answer the question, well, you really can't, if your assurance is, I hope I stay faithful. Because I hope I stay faithful, but I'm really not sure that I, that I will only in this, that I'm sure that God is faithful. So if I don't, he will bring me back. Yeah. So the person that you're talking about there, yeah. it is my hope that they're a prodigal. It is my hope that they're a prodigal. I can't know that. You can't know that. Uh, they could be someone that didn't have salvation in the first place, but that professed it. So then our question would be, what if I'm that person? What if I have this sincere faith and I'm professing it, but at some point I'm going to abandon it? And again, that is a fear that creeps in to say, what if I somehow blow this? And I kind of come back for myself in those spaces to say, either God has me or God doesn't. And I trust that he has me. So he's going to keep my faith for me. And that way, when, as I fluctuate throughout life, I, I know I'm a prodigal if, if I'm fluctuating. And, what, and, and, and I know I'm not an apostate. That, that's the best I can tell you. Somebody else, I can't know. Yeah, and I would, and I would say this too. You know, when, we, when we think about the story of the prodigal son, for example, um, the prodigal chased after the world. The prodigal de- demanded his inheritance. The prodigal made a lot of decisions that were bad decisions. But at no point did the prodigal think, I'm not a son. At no point did the prodigal uh, have this sense that I cannot go back to my father, right? And I think that that is, that is um, you know, a dynamic that we have when we are actually children of God, is that we know that God is real. We know that God loves us. We know that the gospel is true. And we know that even though we may have made a lot of bad decisions and done a lot of stupid, foolish things, we know we can return to him. That's now, right. that's something that only we can know. And I've, I've personally never had that particular experience. Um, you know, I, I certainly chased after the world, but that was before I truly knew Jesus. And so the individual person is the only person who can evaluate those things at the end of their life. But at the end of the day, here's what we can know to be true for sure. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ. And that's what I trust in. I'm going, God, if I am your story and you are not mine, then you will complete me, even though I may at times in life intellectually be unfaithful. In other words, I may start doubting, read some great books and start saying the Bible's not true and God's not you are going to bring me home and you are going to lead me back. So at the end of the day, really what this question boils down to is we can't truly know anyone's genuineness of, of, of faith or salvation. We can assume someone that expressed, bore fruit and, was, and, and endured is saved. And we can assume someone that expressed, bore some fruit and then didn't endure and died might not be saved. But God is clear because of what happened with Jesus on the cross, thief dying on a cross. Think of all his friends. If he was your friend, 
and you were like, dude, he was fine, and then he wasn't, then he got into crime, then things went really badly, then they crucified him, he never came back to God. But in that moment, on the cross, between him and Jesus, he sure did. Like, that's what I love about salvation is it's not measured like humanity. It's not saying, well, you were faithful for 23 years, so that's good. This person was a jerk, and then when they were 72 on their deathbed, they came to Jesus. They get a subheaven. They get the small house, and you get the big mansion. Like, that's not actually biblical. The rescue of our souls happens in a moment based on God's faithfulness. And so I, I'm always perfectly content in saying, God, my own salvation, the salvation of my children, the salvation of my friends, the salvation of someone on their deathbed, thank goodness all of that is in your faithful hands and not in theirs or mine. Because if that was in theirs or mine, we're in big trouble. So the friend that you're talking about, someone like that, pray for them. Pray that they're a prodigal. Share the gospel with them. Or pray that they, if they're not a prodigal, they would come to know Jesus. If they're having an intellectual journey that is unraveling their faith, pray that God will bring them home. And let that be a driver for you as it is for me to say, let me continue to preach the gospel to myself because I don't want to become forgetful and end up behaving foolishly even though I know Jesus. That's good. Uh, Leslie asks, uh, I have a hard time knowing when to speak up for myself if someone is treating me un- unkindly. Um, so, you know, standing up for herself in that way. On the positive side, I've learned by practice to feel empathy for the person hurting me and to practice forgiveness. I know it is real in my heart, but I also feel it would be better sometimes if I would speak up for myself and not feel so afraid of a negative response to that. Uh, how can I know when I should or shouldn't forgive and stay silent or forgive uh, but reveal my feelings? So mm. uh, how do I know when I should or shouldn't forgive um, and stay silent or forgive but then also reveal my feelings? Yeah. So like, how do you deal with so, that? So f- f- great question, Leslie. First of all, let me just say this. There is no place where we should not forgive. So, so that's an easy answer. When should I or should I not forgive? Now, I, I know you. That's so not the question I know asking, that's not right? really the question yeah. you were asking, so I'm, but I'm just stating that because of the way that was worded. She said forgive and stay silent exactly. versus forgive so, and but, talk. But in terms of forgiveness, forgiveness right. is an act on our part that is always available to other human beings because Christ right. has forgiven us. Now, right. that doesn't make forgiveness easy. easy. It doesn't mean we actually do it right away. It doesn't mean it's not a big wrestle. But the, the actual should, as Jesus would have said, is how many times should we forgive as many times as you are injured, because I forgave you of everything. Now, forgiveness uh, is, is unconditional, but I will tell you this, that here's what's not unconditional, is trust, okay? So I always tell people, love and forgiveness should be unconditional. They're difficult to have unconditional as humans, but they should be. Trust is earned. It is fully earned. So I always say this, one, if someone hurts you small hurt, uh, a conversation, they say something silly. The way to deal with that is either let it go because you know this person and that was just an unintended silly thing they said or did. And maybe over some cup of coffee a little later on, you say, hey, by the way, remember that one time that was a little hurtful, but hey, no big deal, right? Or you just leave it alone if it doesn't, if it doesn't hinder you. Now, I always tell people, if you're holding on to something, someone's done something to you and it's just there, then that's usually a good indicator that you should bring it to their attention at some point in a gentle and kind way. If someone has a pattern of hurting you, they do something over and over again, then it is helpful to them and helpful to you to bring that to their attention in a gentle way. So let's say the third or fourth time someone says a harsh thing to you in a conversation, you might then say to them, hey, just by the way, 
when you say things like that to me, they're hurtful. And I, I'm, I'm guessing you're not intending to hurt me. So I'm just giving you a heads up. That's not helpful. If you find them then doing things like this, they keep saying it, but they go, oh, I'm so sorry. I know that hurts you. I apologize. Then you know it's a habit they're trying to break, and that's fantastic. Give them lots of grace. Or if you find them not doing it anymore, fantastic. If they're like, okay, and they just keep doing it, then we get into the trust factor, boundaries and trust. I always say boundaries need to be in place with people that are regularly in a pattern of hurting you, and you've made that known to them, and they're not changing. Now, uh, we get into spousal relationships, and it gets complicated because you can't exactly like separate yourself from them. But you can have boundaries in a spousal relationship when somebody's hurting you in regularity and say to them, listen, uh, we're not going to play in this space. We need to get some help or some mentoring or whatever else. So at the end of the day, with forgiveness, I gift you with forgiveness because that's an act on my part saying what you did was not right and it was not okay. But because of what Jesus has done for me, I can bear your burden. I can bear your sin. I'm not going to let you keep doing it to me. So I'm going to put a boundary in place or I'm going to articulate to you that you're doing it to me so that you can understand. And if you remedy that, great. And if you don't, then I'm going to put a boundary in place. Uh, In terms of the question that you asked, when, when should I be silent? The only time I think silence is helpful in space like that is when it's a timing issue. So in other words, you might be silent in the moment, but find a better time to tell them that that was hurtful. You with me? So silence should be a timing thing. Uh, If I say it now in this emotional moment, you're going to get defensive. It's not going to go well. Or when it was a single event where they did something silly, you realize it's not part of their character, and you graciously just let it go because it's not going to come up again. Those are the two appropriate times where maybe being silent is okay. The rest of the time, the scripture says, we should, as believer to believer, engage with one another in pointing out gently and with love the areas that are not um, helpful. Yeah, and I think that you know when it comes to how do you speak up for yourself? Um, you know, when it gets to that point, like Renault is kind of sharing, there's, there's a time where you can just, you can be hurt, you can forgive and let it go. There's a time when it's repetitive or if it's major hurt, yeah. right, that you need to address it. Well, Matthew, uh, Jesus actually gives us kind of a process for how to do that in Matthew chapter 18. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and read it because I think it will be really helpful. And I think, Leslie, I know that you have read this before, but I think it will be helpful for just all of us to kind of consider Um, you know, what Jesus says about how do you deal uh, with people who sin against you. And and it says in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, so this is specifically in the context of of another believer, right? So if a, a believer sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So don't bring it up at Thanksgiving dinner, you know, with in front of your whole family or at uh, or, community or on Facebook yeah, or at your missional community or wherever it may be. He says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So you have that one-on-one conversation, and if your brother hears you and responds and, and asks for forgiveness or whatever it may be, then you have already gained, you've won your brother, you're back with him. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you, some neutral parties, uh, that every charge may be established. That have relationship the, with both parties usually is more helpful. Yeah, yeah that uh, not just two random people you find in Mosaic Lobby, 
Um, but uh, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And there's some Jewish culture in there, but that's a helpful principle. If he refuses to listen to them, then you bring it to the church. Uh, if he refuses to, uh, and, and specifically the elders of the church, and if he refuses to listen uh, to the church, let him, to be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And what he's saying is, listen, there is a process of handling uh, dispute. There's a process of handling sin, and that should be first individually. Uh, and if you can't win them, then you bring some other follower of Jesus along with you who's neutral. You're not you know, going and getting them like on your side and then saying, you know, Renault, I brought my friend, you know, Billy, Billy and I, we've talked a lot. And now, you know, Billy and I are here to confront you. No, you bring a neutral party and say, hey, Billy's just going to sit down on this conversation and we're going to talk this through and Billy can help mediate. It's helpful if Billy is a mature follower of Jesus, right? Um, and then you, you go from there. And so that's, that's a helpful, very practical way to look at how do we speak up uh, when we're being hurt. And then the last thing I would just say to you, because you said it sort of in your thing, is that another way to evaluate when we should or should not be silent in terms of rather when we should or should not let something go. If your silence, your letting it go, is out of fear of the person's response, that's generally not a good reason to be silent. Right. Because that establishes a sense of, I should confront you, I don't want to confront you because I'm nervous of your response to me. Yeah. If your response to let something go is because you're like, you know, I really don't think this is an issue for them, I, I think it's a one-time deal or it's just happened once or twice, and I love them and it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me, then it's a good time to just kind of let it go. Whenever we let things go because we're afraid of bringing them to the table, that's usually more of a self, um, uh, a selfish, I guess, is the, uh, a, yeah, a selfish reason rather than a biblical godly reason because I'm trying to avoid conflict rather than I'm trying to love this person. So light is always better than darkness, just FYI. So I always say bring yeah. things into the light yeah. and the enemy can't play in the light. Yeah, it's good. Hopefully that is helpful, Leslie. And keep the questions coming, guys. I would love to continue a conversation with you all. Um, we had another question, um, and this actually kind of connects to that last question, Leslie, but in a little bit of a different way. Uh, what do I do if I feel like my church leaders are misrepresenting the gospel? Mm. Now, I hope that this person who's asking this question is not talking about mosaic. But if you are. Come on. If you are, the, the yeah. answer will be exactly the same. Yeah, that's uh, this true. This is exactly what you need to do. Yeah, so what do you think? What do I do <laughs> if I feel like my, ch my church leaders are misrepresenting the gospel? So that is a fantastic question. And so unfortunately, one that we have to deal with often because yeah. so many church leaders uh, are misguided and end up um, uh, misrepresenting the gospel. So, so here, here's the reality. We, we always, in, in some ways, really the Matthew passage that you just dealt with functions in the same way. If it is a church leader, a church leader that you specifically, so the, the, the lead pastor is preaching or a particular elder or deacon in the church or a leader of a missional community, whatever, then you, your best bet is always to go to them first and to say, hey, can we grab some coffee? Yeah. Now you, you're all like, oh my gosh, uh, that, that's so nerve wracking. Welcome to being a believer. We are equal. Now, let me just, since we're in this little space, let me just say this. If you have a church leader that legitimately is a bully, that uses authority as a, 
uh, as a weight over you that isn't approachable. That's all that. I, mean, I get it. Then, then that's a whole different level of scary. And that's actually a, a whole different level of abuse as well of the position. But let's assume for a second for the sake of this conversation, we, we don't have a truly unhealthy uh, bully of a dysfunctional leader. We just have someone that's misrepresenting the gospel. You go to them, you grab coffee and you say, hey, I feel like this may be a misrepresentation of the gospel or a skewed version of it. Here's why I feel that way. You bring to the table the things that you have. This has happened to me on multiple occasions over the last 17 years at Mosaic. And I have appreciated it every single time that a congregant, a person in our congregation would have the courage to, to reach out to me and say, can we meet and then come with a question I think this was a misrepresentation. Mm -hmm. I will tell you this, that there have been times in those discussions where I have gone, oh my goodness, you are correct. The way I said that or the way we uh, unpacked that uh, absolutely correctly misrepresents. In fact, I just got an email um, in, in the last week or so about somebody that had heard something that was preached off of our stage they articulated out of the podcast exactly what we said. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, yes, I know what we meant when we said that, but the, the way it's said right there, I'm like, that seems to mean this. And if, it's, if it means this, then they're right. That is incorrect. So we need to remedy the way we say that because that's not fair. That is a misrepresentation of the gospel. So I'm grateful that the email came or I'm grateful that I've had the cup of coffee. That's where you should start. Go have the cup of coffee with your leader and say, this is where I think you're misrepresenting the gospel. This is why I think so. And either have, give them the opportunity to explain why they're not. Actually, this is right. And then if you go, oh my gosh, I, I see that now. Great. If they go, oh my gosh, I see that now. Great. If you run into a situation where they're, they're like, we're not misrepresenting the gospel. This is the truth. And you go, no, no, I'm serious. This is the truth. Your next step is to say to them, thank you so much, and then gather two or three others. Now, if it's a church leader, you should be gathering two or three other church leaders. Now, if you say to me, well, hold on, another question is, what if my church leadership as a whole is misrepresenting the gospel? You've got one of two choices then. You either approach the church leadership courageously as a single person, and maybe you take one other or two other people in your church with you that are mature believers, and you approach them together. You meet with the elder team or whatever. If they then don't, one of your options is to go to another pastor in town, another church that's respected and say, this is our concern. Are we off base here? And maybe ask them, this has happened to me on occasion, both, both ways. And so that's always been helpful because we can articulate on a pastoral level. And if they still don't, then the good news is you, you never actually had a wedding when you joined your church and you didn't make promises to God like this. Uh, I promise until I take my last breath that I will be part of this church. We don't have a covenant relationship with a local expression of the global church. We have a covenant relationship with the bride of Christ, which is expressed in lots of church spaces. So if someone or a church leadership is misrepresenting the gospel, you've studied it, you've approached them, you've been gentle about it, they have not changed, then at some point your next move is to say, we love you guys, we really do, but we need to be in a place where we see the gospel represented well. And then you, you change churches and go through that difficult process. Yeah, I think that changing churches ought to be a difficult process. It ought um, to be a difficult I process. Think that and it ought to be a last resort. It ought to be a last resort. I think that it ought to, um, in our culture, it 
usually isn't a difficult process. It's as simple as not showing up anymore. And it's and usually not, not giving and anymore. And it's usually and not the last resort. It's a first resort. Right. I don't like what he said or she said on that stage. I don't like what the worship leader did. I don't like the way. I'm not going to talk to anyone or tell anyone. I'm just I don't leave. feel like I'm being fed. Whatever yeah. it may be. And and you know, here's the thing. Like we, on the one hand, we don't commit to church for like for life forever. We don't marry the church, the local church. But on the other hand, we ought to commit to the church. I mean, we we do have covenant partners. There is yeah. a, a level at which we covenant with one yes. another. It's not a lifelong marriage covenant. It's not it's, a lifelong it's, marriage it's, covenant. It's a covenant where we say, yeah. hey, I'm going to submit to the leadership of, of the church insofar as they are representing the gospel. And submitting to Christ. And submitting correct. to Christ. And so there is a space where it's completely appropriate if you are at a church where not just a leader, but the church leadership is misrepresenting the gospel and you're not the, the the crazy one in this. Like you 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 check this with maybe some other as you know Renault mentioned, mature followers of Jesus, and they're like, yeah, this is definitely a misrepresentation of the gospel. You not only have the freedom but the obligation to once bringing that to the table if it's rejected, then to separate from fellowship and and step into a new church community. That's one of the few reasons we should move to another church. Yes. We should leave our church. When the church um, misrepresents the gospel, you have approached gently the church yeah. leadership and they have not submitted to the gospel in that way. Yeah. One other thing I would just say from a pastoral perspective is it's always helpful when you are bringing information to the table to the leadership of the church that you believe they're misrepresenting the gospel to bring evidence, right, that comes from peer-respected peer spaces, and that's usually books or articles. So, for right. example, if you bring me a book that's written by somebody that is respected in the pastoral community nationally that unpacks what you're showing me, that's really helpful because I'm like, it's not you telling me that, it's you having discovered it through someone that's respected. Now, here's what I'm getting at. Uh, me reading an entire book uh, when you're living a pastoral life isn't always the easiest thing. So sometimes you get a book and you're like, thank you so much. I will take the time to read this when I get a chance in 2049, right? right. But if you bring me an article or a podcast, something short that also describes Accessible. that. So if there's a misrepresentation of the gospel and you can come to me or to the leadership of your church and say, I believe you're misrepresenting the gospel this way. I don't think it's your intent, but it is happening. Here's an article by Gospel Coalition, or here's an article by such and such that kind of unpacks where I see this. I'd love for you to just read that article. Here's my concern. When you're done, circle back up with me and uh, love to dialogue. And if they read the article and come back and say, man, you're, you're right. Thank you so much. We have been. Boom. Again, Matthew 18, brother one, church leadership one. And if they can show you why they disagree, because sometimes you may believe it's a misrepresentation of the gospel, but it's just a theological difference. So, In other words, where they're like, look, we understand the article. We see where they're coming from. We actually theologically have a different view. That's why we preach it this way. Then you just have to decide whether that theological view is something you can live with or not, uh, whether it's an opinion, a studied conviction, or a matter of eternity, right? right? And so if it's a matter of eternity, they're misrepresenting the gospel. Right. If it's a studied conviction, they may not be misrepresenting the gospel. Then they just may have a different opinion than you do, and then you decide. Uh, if uh, if it's just an opinion, then you've got to go. Oh, now I know when you say that that I just disagree with you. I hope that's helpful. Very cool. All 
All right, I think we have time for this last question. Um, it says, uh, I know, now this is a several part question, okay. so I'm gonna kind of just shotgun it out and we'll maybe parse out how we can answer this question. Um, so uh, this person says, I know I am to pray in faith, but how can I discern between my will and his? And that's pretty much um, the question. The question. Yeah. Is it his will for my prayer not to be answered when my situation brings so much pain? Um, does, this, uh, does that make me self-centered instead of God-centered when I pray for the situation to be reconciled uh, when that's not his plan? Uh, all things will be reconciled in heaven, but again, is it selfish to want that here? Right. And then I've started questioning my motivation of praying. Am I really praying for his will or my own? I do try to be faithful to his will. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that you know, the heart of this person's question really is, how do I pray in faith when I, I know I want God's will? Sometimes it seems like that might be hard. And I don't necessarily know what God's will is. And that's a bigger, that's the how bigger problem, I, right? I mean, this question really is, how do I discern God's will so I can pray God's will? And, and I think I would start answering the question this way. Really, really good news. You don't have to always discern God's will before you pray. And that's what makes us human and what makes him God is. So I, I always think about prayer very much in the context of parenting, uh, that I'm a three or four-year-old and God is the dad, Right. And I don't, as a parent, expect my three or four-year-old never to come and ask me for anything until they've discerned whether it is wise and right and good and whether it is my will. That would actually reverse the parenting process. Right. Don't ever come to me, child, until you have considered what I know at 45 that you are apparently supposed to know. And if you come and ask me... And I go, what kind of a stupid question is that? You're four. You should know better than to ask that. That's a really like, profound that, look at that. Actually. That's not how I deal with my children. What I expect my children to do is to not know. That's kind of, they're four. Right. They don't know. That's why I told them to come ask me. Because I know, but they don't know. Now, right. what I expect of them is when they come and ask me, that they love and trust me and my goodness enough that whatever answer I might give them, that they're okay with that. So right now I have teenagers, right? They know more than four-year-olds and less than they think. <laughs> so that's kind of where they land. So they pretty much think they do know. So right. they come and ask with an expectation, as do four-year-olds. But And when a teenager says to me, a 12 or a 14 or a 16-year-old, can, can I have this? And then anytime I say yes, all is well in the world. And anytime I say no, they're like, what? This is stupid. Why can't you? then I always give them the sense. So you know what? If you can't handle my no as well as you can handle my yes, then maybe I should say no more often. Now, that's a human answer. God doesn't necessarily create that. And I don't actually do that. I just threaten them with it. But the reality is this. My expectation as a dad isn't that my children would know my will and only ask my will. That would be stupid as a dad because that's not, that's not fair. They're the kid. What I do expect of them is that when they ask whatever their will is, that when their will doesn't align with my will and my answer is not what they're hoping for, that, th that they would trust me enough to be able to have a good response to my answer. That's actually what I expect. Now, let me be very clear. Because they're a child, I expect as a good parent that they will not always have a good response to my answer. That's yeah. part of parenting. So there's a ton of grace there. When my four or five-year-old, I don't have one now, but I've had plenty of them. 
when I say no to something they really want and they repeat the question over and over again, I don't on the second one go, stop asking, I've already answered. In fact, there have been times, quite honestly, where after the third or fourth time, I'm like, you know what? I've thought about it, that's fine, you can have it. Now again, we're speaking in human <laughs> terms here, but there is also evidence in scripture that God is gracious knowing us so well that as we pray for the things we desire, that he is a, a good father, gives us what we need, but also withholds from us what we do not need and should not have. So what I would say to you in this question is this, there's nothing wrong with praying for what you want. There's nothing wrong for asking in regularity in a circumstance, God, I don't know if this is your will or not. I haven't been able to discern that. So I'm going to keep asking for what I want. When I go to prayer for people or for myself, for things, now there's certain things I, I know. Like I'm like, God, I just pray that you could somehow kill my marriage because my wife's really ticking me off right now. Like, I, don't, I don't ever pray that because it's never going to be God's will that my marriage ends, right? That would be a tragedy and tragedies happen in this world. Things die that shouldn't, but I'm not going to pray that. But I might pray for healing from a particular illness or for somebody else. I might pray for a circumstance change that just keeps not changing and I keep praying, please change it. I'm not going to stop asking for that because I'm four and I get to ask that. And until God makes it clear to me that that circumstance is his will, which he often doesn't, but on occasion does. Until he does, I'm going to keep asking. Yeah. And I'm going to assume that as long as it doesn't change, that one of two things are true. Either the timing for his changing it hasn't come, or it is not something he's going to change, but I get to keep asking until it either goes away or until he reveals otherwise. What you shouldn't have to carry on your shoulders is this. I shouldn't ask till I've discerned his will. You're the kid. Ask away. And it's not selfish to ask God for what you want. It's childlike. And we are his children and he is our dad. That's what I love most about God actually, is that I can come to him with all my junk, all my questions, all my fears, all my desires, and he knows what to do with them even though I don't. Well, I think that's a pretty good spot for us to, to close up shop. Um, man, you know, at the end of the day, we're gonna have a lot of questions in life Yes, we are. And we're not going to know all the answers to them. I mean, he gives us his word that, that shows us a lot. But even his word, you know, there's a lot of questions uh, that come with that. And so, man, it's an awesome thing that we can come together, spend time together, uh, work through some of these things uh, together and, uh, and see that, that God, is, um, God is at work and yeah. that God is a good father, that he loves us. Um, and that he is moving us. Uh. My greatest human endeavor, I think, on this planet, as far as I can tell, besides, uh, you know, just following Jesus and all that, is learning to trust God. I mean, that, that's really what it boils down to. Because he loves me so much, I trust him. And all these questions that we've asked, honestly, all boil back down to this. Do I trust him enough in the unknowns of my life spaces to say what I trust in this space, whether it's my faith, my salvation, my prayers, my reality, my wiring, my purpose? Do I trust that he is a good father uh, working all things out for my good, even though it doesn't always, from a three-year-old's perspective, feel that way? Or do I not trust that? And I promise you, you're not going to trust that all the time, because I don't. And do I then uh, find myself in awe of his grace? And so that's our journey. God, you're so gracious to my childlikeness, my childishness, and you're so good to me that I'm growing up. And so I'm learning to trust. But we still get to ask the questions and wrestle with them.
It's great to be with you guys today. Yep. We will see you guys next week. Thanks for being with us.